Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm Sarah, and this is Katrina. Say hi, Katrina. Hi! We are a strange and slightly funny sister duo that enjoys talking about strange stuff, crazy cases, and things that make you say, hmm, that was fascinating. In other words, if it's weird, wild, bizarre, and provocative, we're going to talk about it on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you for tuning in this week. Katrina and I have a great show for you all tonight. We can't wait to talk to you about some interesting cases and topics that we found for this evening. Um, we are going to start it out with what I consider to be a really, really fascinating case. And this is the life and story of Mr. Carl Tanzler. So I found this really interesting article to begin on the lineup.com. It was written by the lineup staff. And this was put out in about 2017. But this story actually occurred back in the 30s. So the name of the article is Carl Tanzler, the man who loved a mummy. They say love never dies. Carl Tanzler took that to heart, maybe too literally, when his beloved patient Elena Milagro de Hoyas died in 1931, he couldn't bear it. After two years of visiting her in her tomb, he stole her decaying body and brought it home, where he did his best for seven years to preserve it. Carl was an odd bird even when he became even before he became a grave robber. When he immigrated from Germany with his wife and two children, he was plain old Carl Tanzler, but in the New World he became an aristocrat, so he made himself an aristocrat, calling himself Count Carl Tanzler von Kossel. He wasn't a count, though, and he wasn't a doctor either, but that didn't stop him from taking Elena Milagro as a patient. When he first met the young woman who would become his wife and death obsession, become his life and death obsession. He was in his 50s and living in Key West, Florida. His wife had left him, and he was working as a radiology technician in the U.S. Marine Hospital. Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyas was a 21-year-old Cuban-American beauty. She'd come to the Marine Hospital for treatment of tuberculosis. Tansler had visions since childhood of a dark-haired woman who was destined to be his true love. He believed he had finally found her in Elena. In 1930s, tuberculosis was often a fatal disease. Bypassing all the hospital rules, Tanzler set about saving her life, inventing a bizarre regimen of homemade tonics and x-ray treatments using equipment he smuggled from the hospital to her parents' home. Not surprisingly, it didn't work. Elena died October 25, 1931, and Tanzler used his own money to build an elaborate stone mausoleum for her, with her family's approval, but he kept the key. For two years, he visited her nightly in her above-ground tomb. Then he decided the next step was to bring her back to life. He built a laboratory Ooh. for the... I know, right? He built a laboratory for the purpose, and late one night, he stole Elena's body, bringing her to his lab in a toy wagon. He used mortician's wax, plaster of Paris, and wires to hold the rotting corpse together. So keep in mind, she was already two years dead by the point that he stole her body. Um, he brought it home, and he used perfume and clothing to kind of mask the smell and the fact that she was a decaying corpse, and then he made a wig out of her hair and put it on her head, out of the hair that had come off, obviously, when she was dying and decomposing. He shared a bed with her, and they say it's not clear whether or not he had sex with his dead bride, but a paper tube was reportedly discovered in her vaginal cavity. 
Yeah, right? Tanzer later revealed that his ultimate plan was to fly Elena high into the stratosphere where radiation from outer space would restore life to her body. This is really crazy. So after seven years of doing this, of living with this mummy, the neighbors began to get suspicious. Why was he buying women's clothes? Why wasn't he visiting Elena's tomb anymore? When locals spotted him through the windows dancing with the giant doll, they, they came to investigate. Elena's mummified corpse was put on display at a funeral home where more than 6,000 people viewed it before it was returned to the Key West Cemetery. It was put in an unmarked grave to prevent any more tampering. Tanzer was put on trial for grave robbery, but the statute of limitations had expired, so he went free. Surprisingly, he was not despised in the community. In fact, many of the women saw him as an eccentric romantic, and he even asked for Elena's body back after the trial, but that request was not granted. So he actually built a model of her and lived with it for the rest of his life. So he built a little doll to look like her using the mask that he had originally put over her face. What? So rumors persist to this day that he actually switched the model and the mummy at the last minute and lived out his days with her corpse. So, Ew. right? Super creepy. <laughs> oh, man. No. 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 Can you imagine the smell? Probably no, I don't disgusting. want to. So, and it makes you wonder why his first wife left him. But I think it's actually a really sad story because this poor gal, Maria um, Elena, she was, a, by all accounts, she was a local beauty and she was actually married um, when she passed away. But she had, she was married to this gentleman, I think his name was Luis me if I'm wrong, Luis Mesa, and he died, he left shortly after she miscarried the couple's child, and he moved to Miami, so she was legally married at the time of her death, but when he found out she had the tuberculosis, um, it was after he'd already left her, but it, it's really sad, because, like, she had miscarried this baby, and then it turns out that she had tuberculosis and a good number of her immediate family also passed away from tuberculosis. So it's just really sad, sad story. And by all accounts in the information that I read, she kind of had no feelings to reciprocate for him. He was just like head over heels, obsessed in love, wanting to be with this woman, wanting to just treat her like a queen. And she just was like, yeah, you're just this creepy weird old dude. And with good reason, look what he did to her after she died. Oh my gosh, I can't even, like, the craziness of that is, like, beyond all crazy. Yeah, can you imagine the whole sexual component of it as well? And No, I don't want to. Just super, super creepy on, like, a major level. But I find this story really interesting. I think that I, I heard about it on several other podcasts as well. There was a, an episode of um, This American Life where they talked about it as well. And it just, the mental illness of a gentleman that would need to go to those lengths to find his true love is, is pretty chaotic. But he didn't spend any time in jail. Interestingly enough. Well, he wasn't, like, trying to hurt anybody. He just was, sounds like he just was a little bit disturbed. Well, and the statute of limitations. sounds like he was harmless, though. The statute of limitations actually passed for that one, which is the primary reason that he did not get any jail time. But 
interesting um, addition to that is that uh, there were a lot of women in that area that brought him food and flowers and all kinds of little tidbits after the trial. They just thought he was this eccentric, romantic, lovely old man, which is funny. What? I'm not. No, that's funny. I'm not certain that help. I'm not certain that it would have been the same sort of a reaction to it now. But when, what year was this again? This was in the 30s. So basically, um, she got sick. I believe it was. She died in 31. So I think she was like diagnosed in 30, 1930 or 1929, and then he treated her for about a year before she died. So, and then 33 was when he took her body to his home. And he didn't get caught until 1940. I can't even wrap my brain around that. Like, that would smell so bad. Yeah. So, evidently he masked the smell with perfumes and other little You can't mask things. that smell. I don't, I've never smelled a dead body, but I'm sure that was after she had been in the grave for a certain amount of time, I'm sure it fades over time, the smell of the dead body, right? I mean, he didn't take her home until after two years. You've got to figure all the moisture probably leaves the body and the smell. I suppose it depends on where they are at in the decaying process. I don't know. I really don't know a lot about that. Well, listeners, if you guys have any knowledge about what happens to a decaying body and when the smell leaves that body feel free to shoot us an email it might be interesting to kind of hear about that as well i mean i have been to a morgue but those were recently dead bodies Ew. yeah when i worked for the hospital I, I had been in the morgue before so um the smell is pretty gross in there yeah but those are more currently dead, and I'm pretty sure they have a process, so. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, my dear. Miss Katrina, what do you have for us today? Uh, Greek fire. Tell That's us about it. it. Well, I got this from wikipedia and the greek fire was an incendiary weapon used by the eastern roman byzantine empire that was first developed in 672 a combustible compound emitted by a flame-throwing weapon and used to set light to enemy ships um Modern armies may have drones and heat-seeking missiles at their disposal, but the true shock and awe masters were dead long before America even existed. The Byzantines had a few different names for Greek fire, like sea fire and liquid fire. It was an incredibly successful one. We're still talking about it today in part because nobody knows what ingredients went into the mixture. In fact, armies that captured the liquid along with the machine that delivered it were unable to replicate either of them. The Greek fire mystery has captivated historians and scientists for centuries and may have been an inspiration for the invention of napalm and modern flamethrowers. Though often used as an umbrella term to describe a variety of lesser formulas, true Greek fire was a specific liquid incendiary <laughs> concoction which was heated and pressured then delivered via siphon 
characteristics that made it singular include its ability to burn on water. I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Because what burns on water? And stick on the surface is only extinguishable with sand, vinegar, or bizarrely old urine. Ew. How they find that one out is what I want to know. Uh, some historians believe it could be ignited using water. Copies were created by other people over the centuries, but none had all these qualities. The true Byzantine formula died with the empire, but petroleum, quicklime, sulfur, and nitre are just a few of the chemicals that have been suggested by modern historians as possible ingredients. Yeah, I find it interesting that despite the advances we have in science and chemistry and and all of those uh, different diagnostic tools that we now have, that they still can't figure out what was in this particular substance. But interestingly enough as well, um, the Game of Thrones series, they, they use a, a similar type of um, war device within it. I, I can't remember what they call it in the, in the Game of Thrones series, but they used a similar thing to the Greek fire, which is interesting in the descriptions and explanations about it and how it worked and how scary it was. Well, I just think it's fascinating that with all the technology we have now, we can't recreate it. And even the siphon portion of it, they couldn't recreate either. That's what I think actually makes me believe that Perhaps we were more advanced and intelligent back in the day than people give them credit for. Yeah, how much are we really actually improving instead of declining? <laughs> That's what I wonder. <laughs> I think we're dumbing ourselves down by using our cell phones and computers for everything now. I think you're probably right because we're using less of our brains. But I'm sure they'll probably figure this mystery out sooner or later just like they have with many other ancient mysteries. So, at this point, this is our halfway uh, point, folks, and you know what that means. It's time for some halftime fun. This is the portion halftime. of the show, right? Halftime fun! This is the portion of the show where we're going to talk about what's new in the news, and there was a particularly interesting story that I came across that I thought was both cute and interesting. Um, and very informative, and it is about a 400-year-old shark. So, um, the story that I found, I mean, there's a couple different versions of it, but the one that I found that, I, that was most kind of educated and informative was on bbc.com. Um, and let me share that with you. If you go online and you look up 400-year-old Greenland shark, you can see some pictures of this bad boy, but it, the article is titled 400-Year-Old Greenland Shark is the Longest Living Vertebrate. So, researchers used radiocarbon dating to determine the ages of 20 animals, and there was a female among them that was about 400 years old. The team found that the sharks grow at about a centimeter a year and reach sexual maturity at about the age of 150. Very interesting, right? Um, their expectations were that they were dealing with a very unusual animal, but everyone doing the research was surprised to learn that the sharks were actually as old as they were. Um, previously, the, the longest um, record holder for the oldest animal was a bowhead whale established to be about 211 years old. And then there was the 507-year-old no yeah, yeah. clam called Ming, which was 
the oldest one, but they accidentally killed it, I think, in a laboratory. Thanks, scientists. <laughs> you so, jerks. <laughs> these animals are actually called Greenland sharks, and they're pretty big. They can grow up to five meters in length, and I don't know how many feet that is. I don't really have a good translation. And since this is a BBC article, they give it in the metric system rather than how we calculate things here in America. But I, I'm sure you can imagine these are bigger and longer than a normal shark. But they can usually be found swimming slowly through the cold, deep waters of the North Atlantic. Their leisurely pace of life is sluggish, which also accounts for their slow growth rate, and they're thought to live for a very long time. But determining their ages has been pretty hard through the years. So now scientists can examine ear bones, called the otholiths, which can show patterns of concentric rings that scientists can count as they would the rings of a tree. So this huge behemoth of a beast is a very, very soft shark with no hard body parts. Um, and it is believed that that's how they can determine the age by looking at those rings. So looking at the eyes. Um, the eye lens is composed of a specialized material that contains proteins that are me metabolically inert, which means after the proteins have been th synthesized in the body, they are not renewed anymore. So we can isolate the tissue that formed when the shark was a pup and do radiocarbon dating. The team looked at 28 sharks, most of which had died after being caught in fishing nets. Using this technique, they estimated that the largest one was a 5 meter long female and extremely ancient. Um, because radiocarbon dating doesn't produce exact dates, they believe that she could be as young as 272 years old or as old as 512 years. But most likely she's somewhere in the middle, around 400 years old. Which means, get this, she was born between the years of 1501 and 1744. Most likely the date what? of birth was in the 17th century. So that is absolutely, absolutely insane. So... It's just really interesting that they don't even breed until they're like 150 years old, approximately. But um, because of their extreme longevity, their sharks may still be recovering from being overfished before World War II. They were once used for machine oil, so they were killed in great numbers as before there was a synthetic alternative um, and the demand fell. But um, if you evaluate the size distribution over the North Atlantic, it is quite rare that you see sexually mature females, which makes this find that they, they found of this woman shark even more rare. So it's usually that you'll find the younger ones or sub-adults. Hmm. I wonder if she was looking for food. I don't know. But there's a large number of teenagers of these Greenland sharks out there. So, but they, they're usually about 50 years old and they say it takes about another hundred years before they become sexually active. So they're just running around out there growing and eating. Um, but I thought that was very interesting in the pictures of this. It looks like it has did no it, Did they say where the mature ones hang out? They're in the North Atlantic, just like everything else. I mean, just like the rest of the whales. I don't know their migratory habits. It doesn't really talk about it in the article, but, um. It's sad that they're finding them in these nets, so most of the ones that they're researching appear to be dead. Just sad that these really, really old creatures are now being taken out by fishing nets and all kinds of other things going on in the ocean. That is sad. Very unfortunate. Right, but <laughs> as, as weird as it sounds that looking at the pictures of it, if you just Google it or look at 400-year-old shark on, on Yahoo, 
and you can see pictures of them and they, they look so cute. Weird looking, just googly eyed. <laughs> just because they're so old. So, yeah. that being their, our halftime break, we're going to jump back in and talk about our next topic, which I chose for today as the Tunguska events. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but. Um, I found this information about this particular event. There's an interesting article on coolinterestingstuff.com. So the article itself is called Unexplained Events, the Tunguska Event, and it was published December 6, 2018. This is something that I've heard about and done some reading on previously, but it's very interesting because they don't really know what created this particular event. But at dawn on a summer day, 103 years ago, on the banks of the river, Podkemenia, I don't know how to say that. It's in Siberia. But the first rays of sun warmed the pine forest wild and wet ponds when the sky exploded and the ground felt its fury. Around 7.15 that morning, June 30th, 1908, a shock wave about a thousand times stronger than the Hiroshima bomb devastated 80 million trees over 2,000 square meters of forest. Reindeer, bears, wolves, foxes, and thousands of other animals fell along with the vegetation that never fully recovered. The Tunguska explosion was the biggest impact that Earth suffered through the history of civilized man. Similar events, even in ancient times, remained unknown until the advent of satellites. Although the epicenter was deserted, people in hundreds of places in Asia and Europe witnessed the incident. The stories were remarkable. Strong heat waves, intense winds, horrific crashes, and earthquakes were reported. Many saw a ball of fire. The night sky was glowing for weeks as the amount of dust released into the stratosphere by the blast. In London, more than 10,000 kilometers away, one could read a newspaper at night with only this light. Across the ocean, the Smithsonian American Observatory reported a decrease in atmospheric transparency that lasted four months. What happened? But the first expedition to examine the region left more than a decade later in 1921. On occasion, the Soviet geologist Leonid Kulik failed to achieve the exact location and deduced the event was due to a fall of a large meteorite. This hypothesis eventually persuaded the Soviet government to fund another expedition in 1927, because this was in Siberia, like up in a very a less populated area. So attracted by the possibility of finding a meteorite iron of commercial value, they sent another expedition out, but no crater was found, much less a meteorite. Other expeditions have confirmed this lack. It was calculated that the magnitude of the blast was between 10 and 15 million, was like 10 and 15 million tons of dynamite. But the object that caused it didn't touch the ground. It smashed into the air about 8 kilometers high. Most likely, in 1908, a piece of a comet collided with Earth. So they say that it was made mostly of ice, ice water with a little methane and ammonia. Upon entering Earth's atmosphere, a small comet usually evaporates before touching the ground. So they say this kind of thing possibly happened here. So the only traces in the soil were very small diamonds and tiny spheres of glass with high concentrations of iridium and nickel. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, and they've done a lot of research about it through the years, but they didn't quite figure out exactly what happened. They just kind of have theories. But it was a natural kind of an H-bomb sort of thing. There's a lot of, like, conspiracy theories also, like, surrounding it, whether it was an alien spaceship or higher technology or black hole. 
that sort of thing. People kicked that around for years as to what could actually be. It flattened about 770 square miles of forest. But they say that there were no human casualties. So it didn't impact the earth. It hit the earth. It just impacted in the air. It disintegrated at about three to six miles above. Oh, it disintegrated before it hit. Yes. So it was about three to six miles above the surface of the earth when it exploded. And it just kind of flattened everything. But they say it's the largest impact event in Earth's recorded history. It was 19, the early 1900s, 1908. There wasn't, and it was in Siberia. There wasn't a lot of people there and or like settlements or buildings or anything like that because it was in the middle of BFE. Well, that's, that's, that's good. So it didn't really create significant injuries, but it's um, quite an impactful thing. I'm sure that if something like that had happened now, uh, it would probably be a lot Oh, that would de- devastate. That would devastate. Uh, oh my gosh, that'd be crazy. But just hearing them talk about the impacts, here's some eyewitness reports. There's a one from a gentleman that says, At breakfast time, I was sitting by the house at this trading post facing north. I suddenly saw that directly to the north over this road, the sky split in two and fire appeared high and wide over the forest. The split in the sky grew larger and the entire northern side was covered with fire. At that moment, I became so hot that I couldn't bear it as if my shirt was on fire. From the northern side where the fire was came strong heat. I wanted to tear off my shirt and throw it down, but then the sky shut closed and a strong thump sounded and I was thrown a few meters. I lost my senses for a moment, but then my wife ran out and led me to the house. After that such noise came, as if rocks were falling or cannons were firing, the earth shook, and when I was on the ground, I pressed my head down, fearing rocks would smash it. When the sky opened up, hot wind raced between houses like fire from cannons, which left traces in the ground like pathways, and it damaged some crops. Later we saw that many windows were shattered, and in the barn, part of the iron box snapped. So it was just like a freaking atomic bomb. Oh, how scary. Could you imagine that? This was like miles and miles away. Yeah, but like the people that, you know, eyewitnesses, what would would go through their minds when they saw that? Well, back then, they didn't really know or experience things like that on a regular basis anyway, so they would have no idea what that was. But here's another eyewitness account that says, We had a hut by the river with my brother Chakaren. We were sleeping. Suddenly, we both woke up in the same at the same time. Somebody shoved us. We heard whistling and felt strong wind. Chakaran said, "Can you hear all those birds flying overhead?" We were both in the hut and we couldn't see what was going on outside. Suddenly, I got shoved again. This time, so hard I fell into the fire. I got scared. Chakaran got scared too. We started crying out for father, mother, brother, but no one answered. There was noise beyond the hut. We could hear trees falling down. Chakaran. And I got out of our sleeping bags and wanted to run out, but then the thunder struck. This was the first thunder. The earth began to move and rock. The wind hit our hut and knocked it over. My body was pushed down by sticks, but my head was in the clear. Then I saw a wonder. Trees were falling. The branches were on fire. It became slightly, it became mighty bright. How can I say this? As if there was a second sun. My eyes were hurting. I even closed them. It was like the Russians, it was like what the Russians call lightning. And immediately there was a loud thunderclap. This was the second thunder. The morning was sunny. There were no clouds. Or sun was, or our sun was shining brightly as usual. And suddenly there came a second one. Chekaran and I had some difficulty getting out from under the reins of our hut. Then we saw that above, in a different place, there was another flash and loud thunder came. 
This was the third thunder strike. Wind came again, knocked us off our feet, struck the fallen trees. We looked at the fallen trees, watching the tops get snapped off. Watch the fires. Suddenly, Chekarin yelled, look up, and pointed with his hand. I looked there and saw another flash, and it made another thunder, but the noise was less than before. This was the fourth strike like normal thunder. Now remember, there was also one more thunder strike, but it was small and somewhere far away, where the sun goes to sleep. So these are like normal, average, everyday folks who are like explaining what they experienced. But it's interesting that there was like accounts of multiple explosions, like three, four, five different times. You'd think if it was a meteor impacting above the earth, that there would just be like one loud noise and that it would be done, right? No. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but it would be really, it would be really unnerving to experience that. I just have one question for you. Sure. Who names their child Chekrin? Well, he's a Russian dude, so obviously they have legs. Okay, but I just really, really want to know. That is kind of a strange name. I mean, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but... All right, what else do you got for us? I have the ever-burning lamps. Tell us about the ever-burning lamps. I pulled the story from historicalmysteries.com. Sweet. Um, this article was written in uh, was written October 29th, 2014. Okay. In the years before electricity, cultures around the world used oil lamps to illumin- illuminate both the night and darkened enclosed space places. A seemingly never-ending supply of oil was needed to keep these lamps burning. But mysteriously, there are accounts of lamps that burn without that necessary oil. These stories come from around the world, Asia, South America, North America, Greece, Italy, Great Britain, and France. Indeed, the Jewish festival of Hanukkah commemorates the miracle of lamps with only a day's worth of oil for eight days. These mysterious ever-burning lamps were usually found when a tomb or other enclosed places were opened, and the lamp was found burning, even though the enclosure had been sealed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That's crazy. Many early writers wrote of such lamps. For example, in the year 140 CE, the tomb of Palus, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, a son of a local Italian king, was opened and single lamp was found burning near the corpse. Frightened, the assembly tried to put the lamp out, but found that neither water nor blowing on the lamp would extinguish the flame. I wonder if they could only extinguish it with old urine. Ew. <laughs> the lamp was finally put out when the liquid in the base of the lamp, which was determined not to be regular oil, but could not be identified, was completely removed from the lamp's basin. So another liquid they can't identify. There were numerous other chronicles of similar phenomena. During the reign of the Emperor Justine, a troop of soldiers stumbled upon a lamp which, according to its inscription, had been initially lit almost 550 years earlier. Mm -hmm. The soldiers could not figure out how this could be so. In England, following his separation from the Roman Catholic Church, King Henry established the Church of England. He soon after demanded that many Catholic churches and communities be destroyed 
or incorporate it into his new church. In one instance, the tomb of a wealthy man who had died around the year 300 CE was opened and was found to contain a lamp that still burned. It continued to burn without apparent fuel for several months until it was accidentally broken and thus extinguished. The most enigmatic figure of the history of these puzzling lamps is arguably a 13th century rabbi by the name of Shield? I don't know. Dunno. Written documents of the time state that there was a lamp outside his house that burned continually without any apparent supply of oil. When a question about the workings of his miraculous lamp, Jay Shield would refuse to tell of the mechanics of the lamp, and the lamp was not the only puzzling feature of the rabbi's house. Contemporary accounts tell that the knocker on his front door could give off smart unwelcome visitors came to call. Modern theorists believe that the that Jekyll had somehow channeled a primitive form of electricity, but nobody knows for sure. No modern instances of these ever-burning lamps have ever been found, so science has yet to declare an explanation for the phenomena. Until such lamp is discovered, the history of these mysterious lamps will remain just that, a mystery. Um, that is very interesting. I've That reminds me of the Indiana Jones Chronicle in the movie, you know, where there's a lamp. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting that they have yet to discover what's created them, and that when you open the door to the tomb, it either puts it out or it, like, destroys the lamp so that they can't use it to try to figure out how the device actually worked. Which I find very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's another one of those cases where they just don't know what the what the, the chemical was in the liquid. They haven't been able to figure it out. Things that make you say, hmm. Hmm. Again, it's another one of those things that make you go, hmm. I am actually going to do one more interesting story. We'll end this one um, won't be the last one of the show, um, but this was an article that I found yeah, girl. on coolinterestingstuff.com again, which seems to be one of my favorite websites now, because um, it has lots of cool ideas for things that are just really strange. And I heard about this um, a couple of other times online and different other, various other websites, and on a couple of other podcasts as well, but it's called Strange Facts About the Mysterious House Hum. The Taos hum is perhaps the most famous of the hum phenomena that is experienced in various locations around the world. In brief, a hum appears to be a low-frequency sound with a rhythmic pulse to it. Some of the people that have claimed to hear or suffer from this humming have apparently claimed it sounds like a faraway diesel engine. It's named after the town of Taos in New Mexico, where it is claimed that it is quite common to hear it. In fact, it was so common that the good citizens and sufferers banded together in 1993 and petitioned the American Congress to investigate the source of this annoyance. In 1997, Congress did direct a dozen or more scientists and researchers from some of the most recognized institutions in the country to investigate. One reason for this was the allegation that the Taos hum was possibly a result of military activity, covert or otherwise. A side effect of this allegation was that the inquiry was conducted openly and involved a large number of people, so a lot of people tromping in and out of Taos. But two key organizations were also involved, namely the Phillips Air Force Laboratory and the Los Alamos National Laboratory. 
those fine people that brought you the atom bomb. Apparently, Mr. Joe Mullins of the University of New Mexico and Mr. Horace Poteet of Sandia National Laboratories wrote the team's final report. According to the August 23, 1993, Taos Hum Investigation Informal Report... Most hearers initially experienced the hum with an abrupt beginning, as if some device were switched on. Many of the hearers believe there was a connection between the hum, the military installations in and around New Mexico, and the Department of Defense, or that the hum was somewhat somehow caused by the U.S. Navy's ELF, extremely low-frequency stations in northern Michigan. So these northern Michigan stations are causing a hum all the way in New Mexico, which is freaking crazy. But these suspicions Whoa. made a civilian presence on the investigation team necessary so they could make sure that the government didn't try to hide that shit from the people. But you know they're trying to. Possibly. The research team first made contact with 10 confessed hearers, so people that were hearing this hum, and made efforts to understand the experiment, the experiential nature of the Taos hum. I don't know what the word experiential means, but their consistent, initial, <laughs> their consistent initial findings were as follows. It often had an abrupt beginning. It always had a low, barely audible sound, and there was always a fluctuation in the pulse. One of the initial findings of the team was that the hum was not only an annoyance, but its hearers also claimed it produced very unwanted side effects like dizziness, insomnia, sleep disturbance, disorientation, pressure in the ears, headaches, loss of sex drive, and nosebleeds. Most importantly, loss of sex. No, I'm just kidding. Um, most importantly, it's very, <laughs> its very existence seemed to disturb their psychological equilibrium. Many felt singled out by a phenomenon that was clearly unnatural. Some form of radiation? I don't know. Maybe? So, there may be no Taos hum at all, and the phenomenon is explained by an at yet, as yet unidentified but reasonably widespread medical complaint. We admit this is not the most exciting of mysteries, but there, if there really is a sub-audible worldwide humming, then humankind should figure out what's causing it. Who knows? It might be dangerous. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like it's toxic, whatever it is. Here are some of the more bizarre theories. One, the Taos hum is an alien communication signal and something to do with the Roswell incident. Aliens. Number two, the Taos hum is a sound generated by the movement and alignment of the planets. Theory number three is that the Taos hum is the intersolar echo of sunspots. Theory number five, the Taos hum is caused by lost spirits trying to get through to the other side. The last one is the Taos hum is the communication of living rock. Regardless of whether it really does or does not exist, there is a significant number of people that firmly believe that the Taos hum is driving them crazy. One way or another, they deserve help. So, it would be one thing if there was just like one or two people experiencing this particular event, but it seems like there's hundreds of people that have actually heard and experienced this particular event. But I also wonder if it has anything to do with, you've heard of that, um, you know, like ear ringing? You know, some people have mm -hmm. that, what's it, tinnitus? Yes. So I wonder if it has yes. anything to do with that. They say that there's that's actually a medical condition that can actually be caused by a chemical imbalance in the body or like an imbalance of electrolytes, something with your inner ear canal and all kinds of crazy other things that could potentially cause you to hear sounds that aren't actually there that other people don't hear. And there's a good 
healthy, huge portion of the population that actually has tinnitus. So again, can you contribute that to something that the government is covering up? I suppose anything is really possible, but why would they do that? But the communications of Living Rock, really? <laughs> the rocks are talking to I us. Commu- I communicate with Living Rocks all the time. <laughs> they hang out with the other rocks that move. You know, there's like rocks in in the um, God in the Dead Sea or something like that, or someplace in in California, in Death Valley that move. I was thinking of the rocks from Fro- the movie Frozen, or the, the rocks rock, from the Little Rock People, the Dark Crystal. Oh yeah, I about that one for real. That movie. I talked to rocks. Yeah, <laughs> they would like move and hum. Kind of Ew. Like tell. Super creepy. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's Dark Crystal time. Ooh, perhaps. All right, folks, this is the point in the podcast where we say goodbye for now. So long, farewell, rate, review, and subscribe to our lovely little podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, we recommend you keep them to yourself. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) We love emails, so if you have any emails, um, suggestions for future shows or topics you want us to cover, or God forbid, corrections to... Something that we've said on the show, which please don't send us emails about our mispronunciations because that's just, we, we, already, we don't claim to be experts in that. But if you have any email that you would like to send to us, you can send it to the bfdpodcast at gmail.com. That's B-T-H-E-B-F-D podcast at gmail.com. We would be more than happy to respond and reply back. Please join us again next week when we talk about more weird, wacky, and wild stuff. But for now, good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye! Bye. Bye.